since New Year's Eve, we have looked at a church, as a church, at 1 Kings chapter 18. And I want to come this morning to the climax of that story. And so you can either turn in your Bibles or it's going to be on the screen. Um, if, you're, if this is your first Sunday to be here, uh, let me just kind of get you up to where we are. Um, Ahab and Jezebel are the king and somewhat the queen of Israel. They have led God's people away uh, from the worship of him to the worship of other pagan gods. God has called up the great prophet Elijah to come. And in the midst of that ministry, and uh, God has said, there's going to be no rain until I say there's going to be rain. And after three years, God tells Elijah to go present himself to the king and to announce that God will send rain. And Elijah, at the instigation of God, calls for all of God's people to gather on the top of Mount Carmel with all the prophets, the pagan prophets, and he himself. And then he proposes a contest that they will both have sacrifices and they will pray to their God and the God who sends fire will be God. Obviously, the prophets of Baal pray all day long and God does not send fire. Elijah then establishes, repairs the altar of the Lord that was there on Mount Carmel and uh, he prays a very simple prayer and that's where I want to pick up uh, in verse 36 of 1 Kings 18. And it says, And it came to pass... At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. One simple truth that I want you to think about this morning, and it is this truth that only God sends the fire. Only God sends the fire. In the story, Elijah proposes this contest, and the prophets of Baal are given an opportunity to make an altar and put a sacrifice on top of it and then they are to pray to their God that God would send fire. I want you to notice in the story that we've looked at for these weeks that Baal, the pagan god, was not able to send fire. And I've kind of made fun of that kind of in the past and you realize the reason that Baal was not able to send fire is that he was not really a god at all. He was the figment of the pagan's imagination. The other thing that strikes me in the story is that the prophets of Baal, who prayed all day long and cut themselves and danced around and acted the fool, they were not able to bring fire. But there's something even that kind of gets a little more personal and more focused at us, and I want you to understand this this morning, that it is also true that the great 
prophet Elijah was not able to bring the fire. That must have been a scary thought (laughs) for Elijah. One of the things that strikes me in his prayer, and his prayer is only two verses long and may have took 30 seconds of one minute if it was an inspirational prayer, maybe. It's not very long. One of the things that he says in his prayer is, Lord, let them know that I have done all of this at your word. What Elijah was saying is, God, I have just done today what you told me to do. I want you to understand somehow the position that Elijah put himself in. He is up there on Mount Carmel, and he has proposed this contest. And um, Well, actually, if you read the story, um, Elijah has appeared in 1 Kings 17, 1, out of nowhere. There's no allusion to him before that. It just says Elisha, the, the Tishbite, the son of somebody or something from somewhere. He stands up and he says, there, God says there will be no rain until he says so. And then he's gone. And as the, as the drought stretches on for several years, Ahab the king begins to look for him. During this time, Jezebel the queen has led God's people to worship Baal and... She is killing the prophets of the one true God, the God God Yahweh. Elijah has to think in in every sense, if this does not go well, I'm a dead man. Don't think about the contest. All of God's people have, have gathered up there and Elijah has said, if God is God, serve him. But if Baal is Baal, then is God, then you serve him. And that haunting statement in the scripture And the people answered him not a word. There was silence. But then we know that there's at least 450 of the prophets of Baal on that mountain. And everybody else seems to be a little wishy-washy. We know that King Ahab is with Queen Jezebel. And they're siding on the side of Baal. Elijah has every reason. If this does not go well, I'm dead. Elijah had a lot at stake. I want you to understand that Elijah did not have the power to send the fire. And it's something we have to come to grips with. He was simply doing what God had told him to do. (laughs) Elijah had other limitations. Uh, It struck me, I kind of reread these chapters. And uh, (laughs) one of the things that struck me about Elijah's life is Elijah was also not able to feed himself. I don't know, I don't have time to go into all the stories, but it kind of strikes me that, uh, it's a little bit funny to me, but I'm a little weird, you know, it was dropped on my head as a child, and it's never quite the same after that, amen, thank you Brother Barry, also dropped on his head as a child, and it's the only explanation we can come up with for Brother Barry, uh, Elijah announces to the king there will be no rain, and God says, now go to the brook Cherith. And there you'll be taken care of. And I, I love the picture of the, that Elijah goes out in the wilderness to this little creek and he's drinking the water. But you realize it's not raining. And I think the little creek became lower, 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 lower. And, uh, and actually the scripture says that God sent ravens to bring him meat. 
And so God provides for Elijah during all this time. You remember that story? That's in, you can read that this afternoon instead of taking a nap. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny to me to see that the prophet says there'll be no rain, and God says go to this brook and you'll be taken care of, and he watches the water level drop day by day. And eventually it's like there's no water. It's like, well, God, this isn't really turning out real good for me. I was the one that announced there'd be no rain until your word, and now I'm the guy dying of thirst out here. You remember what God does? He sends him to the widow of Zarephath. Remember this? This is all in there. And it it all reminds us that Elijah was not able to feed himself. He could not even feed himself. And remember the widow of Zarephath? Mm -hmm. Read it this afternoon. Brother Shane, remember, you want to tell the story? You may tell it. I'll go ahead and tell it. All right. The prophet goes to this widow, has one son, and Elijah says, I'm going to stay here and I want you to go fix me something to eat. She said, there's nothing left. I have one little container of flour and one little container of oil and there's just enough for one little cake. And Elijah says, go and make that. Remember what happened? Is She out of faith, the widow of Zarephath, makes the cake for the prophet. And in all of the years of the drought, the container of flour and the container of oil never ran out. God had to supernaturally intervene even to feed Elijah. I'm telling you, Elijah could not feed himself. Oh, it gets worse. After the the confrontation at Mount Carmel, which really had a great effect because all the people stood up and clapped and said the Lord he is God the Lord he is God the only problem was Queen Jezebel was on her throne at the palace she was not clapping she told her husband mark my words the same thing that he did to all those prophets of Baal with brother Sean loves killing the prophets of Baal amen it's like he's gonna be dead just like they are before this day is over and they begin to chase Elijah and he ends up in the southern part of the Holy Lands in Beersheba in the desert and he's remember the story this is chapter 19 he sits down under a broom tree and he says to God just take me I'm done he doesn't have any provisions he doesn't have anywhere to take care of himself and an angel appears with food and water and he went on that strength it says for the next 40 days now I've, I've overplayed my hand but I want you to understand that one of the things that just kind of intrigues me about this story is Elijah was not even able to feed himself. He was sure not able to bring down fire from heaven. He was limited. He was really, in some respects, no better than the prophets of Baal or the gods of Baal. The other thing that's more stark even to me in the midst of this and I've I've said this to you before that Elijah is up there at the very top of the short list of the greatest people in the Old Testament and one of the things that also strikes me about Elijah's ministry just as you read 17 18 19 as great as Elijah was Elijah was not able to change the culture of his day you think oh man you got the great prophet Elijah there speaking for God in those days and you'd like to say there was this great movement of God to turn God's people back to him but it's actually not the case 
as great as we would think Elijah was, Elijah did not have the power to change the culture of his day. Our one truth today is only God sends the fire. Only God sends the fire, not the prophets of Baal, not Baal, not even Elijah. But when God works, everyone knows that it is God. And so in verse 38, after Elijah's two verses of prayer, it says, then the fire of the Lord fell. Jim Barnard, in a previous church, saw a pastor who rigged up this system of a... He wanted to do it, but I said, Brother Jim, it's a little over the top. It was that their pastor constructed this altar, and they ran a wire to the balcony to illustrate this story, and when the pastor gave the hootie-hoo, hootie-hoo signal... They sent an electrical charge in. Boom! Lit on fire. Brother Jim wanted to do it. He said he could, he could arrange it and we could set it up in here. And I, seen, I told Brother Jim, it seems a little contrived to me. And I, I, you know, if we burn down the sanctuary, you know, it was good, but I'm gone. You know, it's, that's it. If you burn down the sanctuary one Sunday, trying to make it a point. I cannot imagine in reality what that must have been like for them all day to wait for fire to come on that altar for the prophets of Baal. And in that moment, for, for Elijah to draw the people close to him and pray a very simple prayer, and then, boom, God sends the fire. The, one of the things that strike me, strikes me is verse 38. It says, then the fire of the Lord fell. Everyone there that day knew that the fire came from which direction? It wasn't that there was this explosion and it was all consumed. No, the fire fell. It came from above. Everybody knew who sent the fire that day. God can send fire on wood that's wet. I don't know in this cold snap if you have any wood that's been outside and it's gotten soaked with water and you tried to light a fire, probably you weren't that foolish because it's just not, you're not going to burn it. It's wet wood. I didn't even tell that part of the story, but three times Elijah told the men to take water containers and soak that wood so that it saturated the wood, the, the sacrifice, the trenches around it filled up, it was wood so God demonstrated his power this was no contrived human invention that somehow Elijah had this sweet little trick that he pulled off to try to impress the people Elijah did not have the power to send the fire only God can send the fire the other thing that strikes me not only was it wood soaked but it was a cloudless day it's kind of strange to even know that it's one of those few days in the Bible that we probably know what the weather conditions were. It was clear. You know how we know that? Because after they got through at Mount Carmel, then, and, and saw him, they killed the prophets, you know, down at the brook. I know. Okay, amen. Elijah waits for God to send the rain. 
And remember, there's a story. He sends the servant to go look over towards the sea. Do you see any clouds? Mm -mm. No clouds, no clouds. And then finally he said, well, this time you sent me, I saw the size of a cloud. It's the size of a man's fist, but it's small. But it grew, and God sent the rain that day. So it's kind of interesting that when God sent fire from above, it was a cloudless day. It was not as if a thunderstorm popped up that day, and boy, you know, Elijah goes, boy, did I get lucky that day. God sent that lightning and just struck everything. How lucky could I be? No. Mm -mm. The day that God sent fire, not only was the wood soaked, but it was a cloudless day. When God sent the fire, they knew it was God and only God. That's why their exclamation is in verse 39, the Lord, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Too many times in our lives, we settle for what we can do for ourselves. And we can do a little bit, but the reality is, is we can't do God-sized things. I wonder if people looked at our faith, looked at our church. What is it that happens in our church that people would have to explain exclaim no God is in that place because what God is what is do, what is happening there could only be explained by an all-powerful God of the universe too many times we settle for what we can do for ourselves we live in our own power mm. I've had this conversation with a few people this week. There are circumstances in life in which we find ourselves that we are not in control. We have no power to do anything to affect the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And it is at that point that we surrender ourselves before the God who has all power knowing that it is only God who sends the fire. I want you to meditate today on this truth that spiritual renewal, spiritual renewal is a work of grace. I want you to just think about that for just a few moments with me, that spiritual renewal is a work of grace. And what I mean by that is that what God wants to do in our lives, spiritual renewal, revival, awakening, whatever you want to call it, is something that God will do out of His grace. It will not be something that we can work up and we can produce. You understand what I'm saying? We can't. We're like Elijah in his day. We cannot send the fire. God's put me in a situation that I can only depend upon him. It 
has to be a work of grace. That means God has to look down and God has to do it. it it's like my salvation. I'm not able to save myself. God will have to initiate it and provide for it, and God will have to do it. It will have to be a work of grace. So many things, oh, let's just be honest, anything that is of any etern eternal significance has to be a work of grace. If it's Daryl Smith or Huntington First Baptist Church or somebody else producing it, then it is a work of man. I don't even know that it has eternal significance. Spiritual renewal is a work of grace. In verse 38, there's one other thing I want you to see. Verse 38, it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell. And then it says this, And consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When God sent the fire, it consumed everything. The rocks, the dirt, the water, the wood, the sacrifice. If I could make that real booming sound again. Yeah, but I'm not. I'm going to spare you. I've been told I scare small children, you know. Not just from the pulpit, but other times in my life. I'm sorry. No, it just like, boom. It just obliterated everything. There was nothing left. The fire of God consumed everything. The sacrifice, the wood, the water, the stones, the dirt. What struck me when I studied this weeks ago is there was only th one thing left. The glory of God. When everything else was consumed and obliterated, the only thing left was the glory of God. I want you to get this spiritual truth. That when we come with our lives as a sacrifice to God, God wants to consume our lives. And it's only when our lives are consumed that other people will see the glory of God. As long as there is anything of me left, people will look at that. When there's nothing left of me, then all there is is the glory of God. Paul said our lives are to be a sacrifice. Romans 12, 1, But I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Like the bull that was placed on the altar in Elijah's day, our lives are to be a living sacrifice that we set before God. And this is what I didn't really understand because I was thinking about this, and I, I got to thinking about that verse of Scripture in Hebrews 12, 29. Ooh, it's kind of a... It's not one of those happy, clappy verses. It says, our God is a consuming fire. Woo. Our God, Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. What is that? And I began to trace that out. 
in the Bible and what I realized is the significance in the Old Testament when they put the, the sacrifice on the altar, they burned it to consume it so that it was gone. That's the idea. That's what God did that day. The fire that should have burned from the wood and the altar below should have consumed that bull that was placed on top. But this day, God sent the fire from above and consumed it instantaneously. Do you understand? In the spiritual realm, in my life, as I put my life as a sacrifice before God, God's intent is that my life would be consumed so that the only thing left is the glory of God. So when they saw the fire and everything was consumed, they spoke with their mouths the confession of faith, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. They knew that He was God. Only God could do something like that. God's intention in our lives in these days that we've set aside is that our lives would be consumed. So there would be less and less of Daryl Smith and more and more of God. Does that make sense? When I am consumed completely, then all that is left is the glory of God. And that's what people will see. We're going to trace this out in the weeks to come, but I think of the words of John the Baptist, Matthew 3.11. It's probably in some of the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, but they were... Great crowds were coming to John the Baptist. And he said to them, he said, I want you to know that I baptize you with water. But there's one who's coming after me. In fact, he is so great that I'm not even worthy to be the servant that kneels down to untie his shoes. And that one will baptize you Remember what John the Baptist said? With the Holy Spirit and with fire. What was that? No, the fire was to consume us. And what I realized, and we'll trace this out in the weeks to come, is that the Holy Spirit in our lives is that consuming presence or fire of God that consumes me of those things that are not Him and then as the Holy Spirit does his work in my life and consumes Daryl Smith, then what is left is the glory of God. That's God's intention for us as a body of believers in these days. And this is what I ask of you. Is that we position our lives for God to work. All I know from the story in 1 Kings 18, and we've traced this out on December 31st and in the Sundays that followed, all I know is it has to start with a holy dissatisfaction of where we are. There has to be someone like Elijah that stands up and said, this is not what God made you for. 
and there has to be a holy dissatisfaction and then what we've said in previous Sundays how do we position our lives there has to be a holy dissatisfaction we have to repair the altar which is our personal relationship with God brother Fred talked about on December 31st we have to set the wood in order our lives then have to line up with God's standards of holiness and then Byron on December 31st talked to us about then we fervently pray how do we position ourselves for God to work in our lives there has to be some dissatisfaction we have to repair the altar we have to set the wood in order and we have to fervently pray but I remind you that only God sends the fire it is a work of grace that we cannot manufacture we cannot produce we cannot somehow live in such a way that we deserve it for God to move no if God chooses to send fire then he will send fire there is a quote from one of the the greats that studied revival and this is not an exact quote but uh, the man said we set the sails but only God sends the wind we set the sails but only God sends the wind we can't but he can but I'm telling you in the Bible and in history the only times God did is when God's people position themselves for God to work like that as your pastor that's what I'm asking you to do in these days to do some soul-searching make an assessment of where you are start with your own personal relationship with God where is it and what does it need to be when God speaks to you and shows you the things that don't line up with his order then you repent and you make those changes and then individually and corporately we pray fervently that God would do what only he could do in our lives amen amen I'm gonna ask you to stand this morning um, brother Byron and I will be at the front to receive you the altar is open you can come and pray you can come talk with us if you have a decision to make for Christ maybe uh, to follow the Lord in believers baptism maybe you've never established a relationship with Christ you've never said yes to him and today you would say I, I need to know him and I need to surrender my life to him father today we give you this time for you to work as only you choose to do and that father it would be for your glory and for your honor and we pray it in Jesus name
lead us to freedom again. Open my eyes, purify, come touch the core of my lips. Be near me, Lord. Consume me more. Send down your fire, send down your flame. Blow through this place so I'll never be the same. Burn in my heart, cleanse every stain. I run from the ashes and I run to your face. I surrender. I surrender.
bow down before Him, for He is Lord of all. Sing hallelujah, Christ is
We're going to receive our offering at this time, so we'll ask our ushers to come forward. Um, I want you to know next Sunday, we will have fourth night, not this Sunday, but next night, 5 o'clock. I'm also needing to have a meeting with the security team. So if you're on that security team, and I'll try to send you a text this week, next Sunday at 4 over in the conference room. Next Sunday, 4. And then remember tonight, very important to me, that we meet in here as a church family, family conference. We do have some business, but then we want to talk about the role of prayer in spiritual awakening. And so, Brother Gary, would you come and lead us in prayer? Father, we thank you for today, God. We thank you just for uh, your love for us, God, uh, the never-ending Father. Uh, God, we thank you just for uh, the pursuit you have for our hearts, God. And, and even though we distance ourselves, Father, that you, uh, you continue to, uh, to love us and uh, you're, you're always there, Father. We pray that uh, you just continue to uh, work in us, God, work in this church, Father. We pray that we can impact uh, others for you, God, and we thank you just for your love. Uh, we thank you for this offering. In your name we pray. Amen. God, today we celebrate life. Life that is God created. We remember.